0: Thanks, Dr. Steve. Good morning. How's everybody? Oh, wow. Okay, I'm going to try that one more time. I have a cold, so I can respond that way. But unless you have a cold, how's everybody doing? There it is. Okay, good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we are going to be in 1 John 1, 2. We are just doing one verse today. Now, don't freak out. Uh, Last week, we started a brand new series on what are called the Johannine Epistles. Johannine just means related to John. That's a fancy term that means uh, belonging to John. And then an epistle is just like an ancient letter. And so we're going to be going through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And uh, we're not always going to just do one verse. There are times uh, when you're studying 1st John where you can put several verses together. Okay? It's kind of like Facebook. right? On Facebook, people can write as much as they want. They'll get on there and they'll rant about politics for like eight paragraphs. Okay? There are other times though in 1st John where it's much more like Twitter. Twitter limits what you can say. You only have 280 characters. And so when you say something, it has to be deep and it has to be profound. And so what you're going to see in some of these places, we have to slow down. It's more like Twitter. Other places, we can put more verses together and it is more like Facebook. Now, to start us off with that, I looked up some tweets this last week that I thought were exceptionally profound, okay? Notice all of these things I'm about to read you, they're very short, yet they say something amazing. So let me give you a few of these. One guy tweeted out, I absolutely refuse to drink any tap water till it's gone through my Brita filter that I haven't changed in five years. Okay? These kind of things, okay? First John is a lot like that. He'll say these little, little epithets, these little short things. Here's another one. You guys remember those magic eight ball toys that maybe you had as a kid? So you'd shake it and it would say like, go for it or no or whatever. Somebody tweeted out, if you drink the blue liquid from a magic eight ball, you can see the future. Trust me, my friend Keith did it once, and he said he was going to die, and then he did, okay? (laughs) Next one, this next one's a thinker, ready? Horses are nature's most beautiful chairs. There you go. Next, the most cutting thing you can say to someone is, who is this clown, because it implies A, that they're a clown, and B, not even one of the better-known clowns, okay? And then my all-time favorite, what idiot named them jet skis instead of boater cycles, okay? So what you see here is they have a limited amount of text to say something that is deep, to say something that is profound. That's why we're slowing down at certain places throughout these letters to really spend more time here, to make sure that we get all of the meat off of the bone. That's why we're doing that. But we won't just be doing one verse the entire, uh, the entire series. Traditionally, <coughs> there are five books that the early church attributed to Apostle John, Okay? The first is the Gospel of John, then you have First, Second, and Third John, and then you have the Book of Revelation, which his actual title is the Apocalypse of John. And so, what you see in First John is you see these very simple sentences, these very short sentences, sometimes little segments of run-on sentences, and yet they say something profound. Martin Luther, the uh, German reformer, in commenting on First John, said this: "I have never read a book written in simpler words than this one, and yet the words are." inexpressible. That's first John. So, with that in mind, we just have one verse today. It is just part of a run-on sentence. Verses 1 through 4 in Greek are just all one big run-on sentence. <clears throat> and today we're just going to be dealing with verse 2. And so as we go through this, we're just going to break it down phrase by phrase. So let me read it to you and then we will get into the text. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Let's pray and then we'll get into this text. Almighty God, we love you and we thank you for 1 John. I pray that this book would convict us, but that it would also heal us, that we wouldn't just be left in the dark feeling condemned, but rather we would know that when we have sinned, when we have messed up, when we have failed, that there is an advocate, Jesus the righteous, who intercedes on our behalf. And so, would you help us remember that as we read this text? We thank you for this text. We ask that you would bless this entire series that you would make these words real to our hearts. We love you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Now, let's look at the first phrase here. The first phrase is, the life was made manifest, okay? What is the life? If you have your Bible, write the word Jesus over the word life. That is a reference to Christ, okay? When 1 John, especially in this passage, is saying the life, it's talking both about who Jesus is and also what he brings. He is the life. He is the source of life, but he also brings life. Jeff said this last week when it called Jesus the word of life. He is the word of life, but he also brings the word of life, the message of salvation. It's almost as if like uh, I'll give you an example. So our worship minister, Tim Hollis, he loves to have fun, okay? He loves to tell jokes, he loves to play pranks, he loves to party. That's Tim, okay? One of the things he will do is if you leave your office, he will go and hide under your desk, and then you will pull up to do some work, and he won't scare you right away. He'll wait a while and then scare you, which is both terrifying and kind of weird. What are you doing for four minutes? Looking at my legs or whatever it might be? Now, if I were to call Tim Hollis the fun, okay, that's my nickname, Tim the fun Hollis. What I mean by that is he is fun and he also brings fun. It's one of his attributes. It's part of his character to be fun, but he also brings fun to other people. That's how First John is using the word life. Jesus is the life. He is the source of all being. He is the way, the truth, and the life, etc. And he also brings life. It's both. The New Testament will often call Jesus the life. Look at John 1.4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 11.25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John 14.6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Also notice that all of those other passages are written by John. There's a lot of similarities between the Gospel of John and 1 John. So the life there is a reference to Jesus and also what he brings, which is life, which is eternal life. Now look at the next phrase here, because this phrase is very crucial for 1 John. It says, the life was made manifest. Okay? Here's what you need to know. God must reveal salvation to mankind. We cannot obtain it on our own. It's not something that we can just reason to. God must make it manifest to us, or else we are without hope. Let me read you a passage from Matthew. You've perhaps heard an evangelist read this passage. It's a very famous passage, but a lot of times people ignore the very last verse of it. So let me share it with you. It's Matthew 16, 13 through 17. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Let me pause for a second. That, by the way, is the most important question you will ever answer. Who is Jesus? Is He a good prophet? Is He just like Gandhi? Is He just a good moral teacher? Or is He God incarnate? Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Let's continue. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yes and amen. Great answer, Peter. And then we just end the text right there. Now look at this next part. Jesus doesn't say, Peter, you came to that answer because you're so smart. Peter, you did a really good job of just thinking through all the options and coming down on the side of who I am. Look what he says. He says, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. That's what Bar-Jonah means. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Notice that God must reveal salvation to mankind. You even see God's election and His saving grace in knowing who Jesus is. Peter can't just reason himself there. God must show it to him. And so what John is going to say is that the life, Jesus, and His saving work and who He is, has been made manifest by God. Okay? If you think through the last 2,000 years of intellectual history, you'll know that mankind is really divided into three different periods of when it comes to knowing truth, okay? So here's what I mean by that. In the 1600s and 1700s, you have a movement known as the Enlightenment, okay? Before that time, mankind is said to be pre-modern. What does that mean? It means this, that mankind believed that we could have truth, but that God must reveal certain truths to us. So yes and amen to logic, yes and amen to philosophy, yes and amen to science. There are certain things we can know just with human reason, but the most important things in life God must reveal to us, that he is a trinity, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that he was resurrected, that he died on a cross, etc. Okay, that's pre-modernity, that's a pre-modern thinking. During the Enlightenment, you got modern thinking, you got modernity, and what modernity would say is we can still know truth, but that we know it through human effort that we know it through human reason. If we can't reason to it or if we can't do it scientifically, it's not something that we can know. And then today we live in a culture that is called postmodern. In postmodernism, there's this idea that truth itself is not objective, and anytime somebody tries to use truth, they're simply trying to subjugate whatever groups are under them. All claims to truth in postmodern thinking are power plays. Where the person who has privilege, the person who has authority, the person who claims to have truth is going to use that as a sword to try to subjugate everyone else. So in the pre-modern era, truth is revealed. In the modern era, truth is come to by human reason. In the post-modern era, truth is bad and it's just a way to oppress people. Now this might be a news flash to you, but the Bible was written before the enlightenment. Okay, The biblical authors live in a pre-modern worldview the most important things about salvation must be given to us by God. We cannot just arrive there. They write from a pre-modern worldview. Now, specifically, what does John mean when he says the life was made manifest? Here's what he means. He's talking about the incarnation. He's talking about when the Son of God takes on humanity. Amen? That's kind of a big deal. That's why we celebrate Christmas, in case you didn't know. It's not because Santa defeated Frosty at the great historic battle of the North Pole. That's not why. We celebrate it because it's the incarnation. You'll see this constantly throughout 1 John. It's the false teachers who say that Jesus hasn't come in the flesh. When when John's talking about uh, Jesus, they'll say that we touched him and that we saw him, that we we, we saw his physicality because he is also human. And so here what he's going to say is that the life Jesus was made manifest at the incarnation. That's his point. Okay? So before we move on, I want to do a little systematic theology with you. Okay? I want to talk a little bit about who is Jesus, because this is super important that you understand this. Okay? It's no good for you to love a Jesus that's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's no good for you to love a Jesus that Christians before you have not acknowledged as Christ. Okay? So I want you to know four things about Jesus. This is the historic, orthodox, biblical position on who Jesus is. Okay? I'm going to put them up on the screen for you. First, that Jesus is only one person. There's only one Jesus. Two, that He has two distinct natures. He is fully divine, and He is fully human. Okay, I want to walk through each of these with you briefly, okay? First of all, Jesus is just one person, okay? He's not schizophrenic Jesus. He's not two Jesuses or something like that. When Jesus takes on humanity, He does not take on a second person. That's a heresy called Nestorianism. After all, that wouldn't save us. We are different people. What he takes on is what is common to our nature. He takes on our humanity. So there's only one Jesus, he's one person, and he has two distinct natures. Okay? Now look at me, this is important. The natures are not inter-, they're not, they're not mixed. Okay? They're not mixed together. Does everybody know what a mule is? It's a weird question, just out of the blue. Does everybody know what a mule is? Mules don't just come from other mules. I don't know if you know this or not. This might be a helpful ag lesson for you. Mules don't come from other mules. Mules are sterile. To get a mule, you have to breed a donkey and a horse, okay? Impress your friends. Tweet that out. Who knew? Who knew that, okay? You have to breed a donkey and you have to breed a horse. That's not how Jesus is. It's not that the deity and the humanity get all mixed together and then you have some sort of mule, some sort of third thing that's neither God nor man. That's heresy. That's not what we mean. We mean that there are two distinct natures. By the way, this means that Jesus' humanity doesn't take away anything from his deity. I've met people that are kind of uncomfortable with talking about Jesus as a man. Notice that his humanity does not take away anything from his deity. I can say both that Jesus is weak in his humanity, like the Bible would say, and I can also say that Jesus is infinitely strong in his deity. So he's one person with two distinct natures. The first one is that he is fully God and he has always had that nature, okay? I'm one human person with one human nature. Jesus is a divine person with a divine nature and a human nature. Jesus has always been God. He's not like God, he is God. He is eternal. He is infinite, okay? Who's older, the Father or the Son? They're equally infinity old, okay? He is truly and fully God and listen to this next part. At the incarnation, he also becomes fully and truly human. He doesn't get rid of his deity. He doesn't lay down any of His divine attributes. God can't cease to be God. But rather, He takes on now a second nature. To quote Athanasius, while remaining what He was, He took on what He previously was not. So one person, two distinct natures, fully and truly God and fully and truly human. Now, here's what you need to understand. Jesus isn't just like humans, He becomes human. at the incarnation and then hence after he is God and man from the time of the incarnation he's always been God at the incarnation he also now becomes man while remaining God and then that continues on into the future but listen he's not just like us he actually becomes human he's not Clark Kent you guys know Superman? Superman is not really human he's from some planet I don't really know I didn't get beat up in high school for reading Superman stuff but anyway I've heard he's from another planet And he's not really human, but he looks human. He puts on his glasses and people are like, who are you? Who are you? Right? That's not how Jesus is. It's not that he just looks human. He actually becomes human. He has a human body. He has a human mind, a human soul, a human will. If he doesn't fully become human, you can't be saved. If he's just pretending to be human, you're just pretend saved. Okay? So he must remain God and also take on humanity. And if you say, well, Zach, how does that work? That is a mystery. I agree with you. Don't try to get rid of the mystery of the Bible. Most heretics come up because they try to deny something that doesn't make sense to them in their limited human understanding instead of just receiving what the Bible teaches us. Now, I'll tell you a little funny story in talking about Jesus being fully human. So, uh, Jared Lawson is our new pastoral resident, okay? And so, my wife and I went uh, out to dinner with his wife and him, and there's a little game I like to play to try to incite violence in couples. And this is the game. I will say, what are the things you most and least like about your spouse? Isn't that a terrible game? So I did that with them because they're friends. I wouldn't do that like in marriage counseling. Uh, But I did that because they're friends. And I asked his wife, Claudia, I said, what are the things physically that you least and most like about Jared? And she thought about it for a second and she said, the thing I most like about him physically is that he doesn't sweat. And at that point, I thought, I knew this guy was a cyborg. I knew this guy was not really and truly human, okay? Jesus sweats, according to the Bible. He sweats drops of blood. He gets tired. He has to learn. He, uh, you know, can die. All of those are in reference to his humanity. His deity knows everything. Deity cannot die. That is the mystery that you have of the incarnation. So before moving on, just because I'm spending a lot of time on what it means for Jesus to be made manifest, I want to read to you what is called the Chalcedonian Creed. It is one of the clearest expositions of who Jesus is biblically ever, and it is incredible. Now, before I read it, I need to mention two things so that you don't uh, mishear something in this creed, okay? The first is this. When it says that Jesus is begotten, that does not mean created. That does not mean made. That's not what that means in theology, okay? When we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we mean something different than when we talk about our children, I have a son, but there's two humans. There's only one God. I have a son, but he came into being at some point, and he didn't exist before then. That's not the case with Jesus. Jesus has always existed. When the church says that Jesus is eternally begotten, it's a reference to his eternal relationship as son to the Father. That's what that means. It does not mean created. So that's the first thing you need to know. The second thing you need to know before you read this creed, so you don't think I've gone all Roman Catholic on you, is this. This creed will call Mary you guys remember the Virgin Mary? She's pretty great. It will call her the God-bearer, okay? Some versions of the creed call her Mary, Mother of God. Now, let me explain what that does and doesn't mean. That does not mean that Mary precedes the Son of God. That does not mean that Jesus gets some sort of deity from Mary. Mary has no deity. She's just a human. She's a great human. She's blessed among women, whatever that means, but she's just a human, okay? What it means when the creed calls her the Godbearer is this. There was a heretic that was going around at this time, and he was saying that the baby in Mary's womb was not really God. And so the church said, no, the baby in Mary's womb really is God. So by calling her the Godbearer, this is actually not a comment on Mary or her deity. She doesn't have any deity. It is a comment on Jesus. It is a comment on his deity. So with that in mind, I want to read this to you. I love and believe every word of this. Let me read it to you. We're going to put it on the screen as well. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards His Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards His manhood. Like us in all respects, apart from sin, As regards His Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but as regards His manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person, and subsistence. Not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same, Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of Him, and our Lord Jesus Christ Himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's look at the next part of this verse. What if we, instead of doing First John just verse by verse, we just did it phrase by phrase? That would be Far, way, way more in the future than, uh, than 2022 or whatever it might be. Okay, let's look at the next verse. <clears throat> and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. Here's my first question. Who is the we here? Why does he say the word we? There's only one person writing 1 John. Why does he refer to himself as we? Okay? The reason that he does that is because he wants to lump himself in with other Christians. He wants to lump himself in with the church. He wants to lump himself in with other orthodox teachers of who Jesus is. And so though he's one person, he is saying that I belong to the church. That's what John's doing. I'll give you a couple of examples. If I say this, we at Parkway preach expository sermons. Does that mean every single person here preaches expository sermons? No, it means a few guys teach expository sermons, but we're saying we because we are linking ourselves in with the rest of the church. Or does anybody know the slogan for Arby's? What is it? We have the meats. okay? I don't know who came up with that slogan. They either deserve a raise or to be fired, and I don't know which one, okay? Arby's is uh, this fast food, if you can even call it food kind of place. It's kind of like renting food. But it's this place, and their new motto is, we have the meats. Now, one guy is saying that. Why does he say we? Because he's lumping himself in with all of Arby's and all of the Arby's glory, okay? That's kind of what John is doing here. By the way, raise your hand in here if you like Arby's. No judgment. This is a judge-free zone. I kind of like it as well. I'll make fun of it, and I'll make fun of you if I see you there, but then you're like, well, what are you doing here as well? I'm like, oh, I was just getting a Dr. Pepper, and then I'll leave, something like that. He's saying we because he wants to link himself in with the church, with the tradition. So let me say it this way. If you are a Christian, you stand within a Christian tradition. There is no Lone Ranger Christianity. It did not start with you. It did not start with your parents, your grandparents, your great-great-grandparents, etc. It's 2,000 years old and older if you go back into the Old Testament. Let me share with you some passages that you might have not ever seen before. Look at this. 1 Corinthians 11.2. Look at the word tradition in all these. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. 2 Thessalonians 3.6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. And speaking of the requirements of an elder, Titus 1.9 says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. John sees himself as belonging to a larger community, and if you're a Christian, you must do the same thing. Let me say this as strongly as I can say it. I don't care if you're reading your Bible. I care if you're reading your Bible the way other Christians have read the Bible. I don't care if you're coming up with some weird new interpretation that nobody for 2,000 years has ever held. That's not Christianity. Every heretic quotes the Bible. Every cult quotes the Bible. You have to hold to the trustworthy word as taught. You have to teach it rightly. You have to read it rightly. You don't get to read it in a vacuum. You have to read it in community, and that doesn't just mean your community group. That means the community of the church. For the last 2,000 years, what have Christians who love Christ, who have the Spirit, thought about this passage? Look at the next part of this, uh, this phrase here. Why does it call Jesus it? You see that? And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. Why doesn't it say him if it's talking about Jesus? Okay? Here's the reason. It's not just talking about Jesus the person. It's also talking about these things that Jesus brings. You can see Jesus in his humanity. You can touch Jesus in the first century. Okay? But you don't know that he's... You can't see his eternality. You can't just touch the fact that he's been with the Father from before all ages or something like that. And so what John is doing is this is a reference to Jesus, but the reason he uses it is because it expands beyond just the person of Jesus. It expands to things about Jesus, to his life, to his ministry, to his teaching, to his eternality, and that's why he uses the word it instead of him. Now look at this next part here. (coughs) It says... And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. A few things I want you to see. First of all, the phrase have seen is in the perfect tense. What is a perfect tense? In case you failed third grade uh, English. A perfect tense is something that happened in the past and was done, and yet it still has reverberations into the present. But then the next two verbs, to testify and to proclaim, are in the present tense. So, So here's what he's saying. We have seen Jesus. He has been incarnated. We were there. I'm the Apostle John. I know him, okay? I know him kind of like an elf, right, Uh, and Will Ferrell. He knows Jesus. That was something in the past, and yet he presently proclaims and testifies. Here is what he's saying in this passage. John is saying, I swear to you what I'm saying to you is true. He's not giving a false testimony. He's not bearing false witness. He is giving a true testimony. That's what John is doing. Okay? So, so let, me, let me give you a little something to contrast this with. There is a very famous philosopher who lived in the early 1800s. His name is Soren Kierkegaard. Some people say Kierkegaard because he's Danish. Soren Kierkegaard. And he was kind of a weird guy. Okay? He was very spiritually tormented. He broke off his relationship with his fiance because he thought God wanted him to. And then, like, he left his inheritance to her. Kids used to make fun of him when he was a little kid. He used to write books and then write public criticisms of his books so that he could critique himself in front of everyone. He's just kind of a weird guy, okay? He's the father of what is known as existentialism. Now, we don't need to know all that. Here's what you need to know. The way that Kierkegaard defined faith was that it was a leap away from reason, okay? It is an antithesis to reason. For Kierkegaard, the more faith you have, the less reason you have because you have to believe it harder when you don't have as much reason that kind of thinking has permeated a lot of Christianity where people tell you just to take it on faith and just have faith and these kind of things listen to me Christianity does not agree with Kierkegaard faith in Christianity is based on reason it is based on propositions it is based on logic when Paul is preaching the gospel he doesn't say Jesus was raised from the dead just believe me because I feel him in my heart he says We saw him and you can go ask 500 other people, many of whom who are still alive, and go talk to them about it, okay? Christianity is based on reason. Faith and reason go together. The more reason you have for something, the more faith you should have in it, not the other way around. So be aware of this thinking that would try to separate Christianity from what's true, from reason, from propositions. Yes, there are things in our faith that go beyond reason, the Trinity, the two natures of Christ, etc., but nothing in our faith goes against reason. We don't hold any logical contradictions, which are necessarily false. There's a big movement right now, and so, so avoid any teachers, avoid any churches, avoid any movements that seek to say, though the Bible's inerrant, we can't really interpret it. Though the Bible's inerrant, you really need experience and these kind of things to know it rightly. What a lot of churches are doing is they're going to affirm inerrancy that the Bible's perfect, but they're going to deny sufficiency, that it's all we need, and they're going to deny the clarity of Scripture. God has not given His Word so that we might just not know what it says. It's written to, quote, make wise the simple. God has given us His Word. We can know it. We can know it in truth. We can have reason. We can build arguments. We can know these things. What John is saying is, what I'm testifying to you is true. I'm not lying. I've seen it. I swear to you. I promise that this is what is going on. Look at the last phrase there, eternal life, okay? This is another reference to Jesus. It's what He is, and it's what He brings. He is the eternal one who is the source of life, and He brings eternal life. Now, why does John keep calling Jesus the life? Here's why. Think through everything that life is in the Bible. God is the source of all life. Before there's anything, there's just God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God must exist. His name, after all, is I am the one who is. He is being capital B. He must exist. You and I didn't have to exist. God could have created a world and not had us in it, okay? But God must exist. He's the source of all life. He speaks life. He speaks things into being. And what is the curse for sin? It's the opposite of life. It's death. Both physical death and then spiritual death in hell. So by calling Jesus the eternal life, what the author is trying to to point to is the fact that when he comes, he undoes the results of death. You will die, but if you know Christ, you will be raised. You will die, but if you know Christ, you will not go to hell. Rather, your penalty has been paid and there will be salvation for you and that salvation will be forever. That's what John is trying to do by calling Jesus the eternal life. Now let's look at the last phrase here which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now, I won't deal with the second part of that uh, phrase because we already talked about what it means to be made manifest. What this text wants to do is now point out the Trinity. We talked about the two natures of Christ. Now we're talking about the Trinity. John is a Jew, okay? He's a thoroughgoing monotheist. The Jews had to confess that there is only one God every day. Hear, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, that what's called the Shema. He is a monotheist. There are no other gods. There are no gods, lowercase g. There's just Yahweh. There's just the God of the Bible. And yet, here, he can use the same language of the Father that he uses of the Son and elsewhere of the Spirit. You see these little seeds here of Trinitarianism. You see the Trinity everywhere you look. You cut John, you cut Paul, and the Trinity falls out, okay? They love the fact that there's only one God, yet somehow, this one God is... Father, and this one God is Son, and this one God is Spirit, and the Son's fully God, and the Spirit's fully God, but the Son and the Father and the Spirit are different persons, and so there's this mystery, and you see that here, and he is saying that this one who was manifest, this one who took on flesh, was previously with the Father. Let me read you a few passages. John 17, 5. What was Jesus doing? What was God doing? What was the Trinity doing before there was any creation? John 17, 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John 8, 57 through 59. I love this one. Jesus is fighting with the Pharisees. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't just say I was. He says I am in Greek. It's the same phrase, ego eimi. He's referencing that divine name that God gave to Moses in the Old Testament. I am. In case you missed it, they think he's blaspheming. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Colossians 1, 16 through 17, and talking of Christ. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is not merely some prophet, he's not merely some good moral teacher, but he is the eternal God. Different from the Father and the uh, Spirit, yet the one God of the Bible, the one God who only has one mind, one will, one essence, one being, you see this Trinitarianism here in John, and you'll see it throughout the letters, you'll see it in the book of Revelation, you will see this kind of stuff everywhere. Now, that was a lot of theology, okay? I've given you a lot of theology. We talked about Christ. We talked about the Trinity. We talked about all these things. You might be thinking, Zach, what relevance does this have for me? What's the application? Here's the first big application. You got to worship the right God. The most practical doctrine is the Trinity. That's the most practical one. Because everything else you're doing, if you're not worshiping the right God, doesn't matter. Okay? But there's another practical application that I want to give you this morning. Okay? Here's what it is. It's very simple, but it's very profound. It's kind of like those tweets at the beginning. Salvation has come. It's done. The Messiah has arrived. He has defeated sin and death. It's done. Salvation has come. So let me address you first if you're someone who's not a Christian, and then I want to talk to the Christians. So let me say this. If you are someone who's not a Christian, maybe you're just visiting today, maybe you're just checking us out, maybe you're dating Jesus, I need you to hear this, okay? What God wants from you is not for you to try harder. What God wants from you is not for you to do better. What God wants from you is not for you to clean up your life. What God wants from you is not for you to try to love God more than anything else. What God wants from you is for you to trust the one who's been made manifest, which is Jesus, and he will do all the stuff. But Zach, I don't feel like I really love God. I still love my sin. That's okay. Come to Jesus, and he will give you new affections. He will give you a new heart. Salvation has come for you. If you're someone who doesn't know Christ, would you... Ask him to save you? Would you bow the knee to him? Will you come before him and say, I don't even know what I believe. I don't even know if you're real, but if you are, would you help me? And watch what he does in your life. For the second part, though, for those of you who already are Christians, which are probably most people in this room, (coughs) here's what I want to say to you. If the life, the life that was with the Father, has been made manifest to us, your salvation is secure and it's done. You can rest. You are forgiven. You're not going to be more forgiven. You're completely forgiven. You are seen as 100% righteous in Christ. God has no more wrath for you if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you're not going to hell. That's no longer an option for you. Your penalty has been paid and you can rest. You don't have to strive. You don't have to try to make God love you. Stop trying to be the good little Christian boy and girl. That's lame. Just love Jesus and he will transform you. And He will love you, change you. Listen to this. You will grow in holiness when you realize that God loves you even if you don't grow in holiness. That's how you actually grow. You grow in sanctification, holiness, by going back to the truth of your justification, that God saves sinners. Stop trying to not be awful and instead just be loved. You're way worse than you think you are anyway but you're also far more loved than you think that you are anyway. See, what I need for everyone is I need our view of sin to be much higher than it is, but I also need our view of God's grace to be much higher than it is. We're way worse than we think we are, but we're also way more loved by God than we think we are. Both are true at the same time. So I want to read to you a little, uh, <clears throat> a little quote <clears throat> by Martin Luther. And uh, as I was reading this quote, preparing for this sermon, I started to cry. Okay, now in case you know me, I'm not much of a crier. I'm kind of a cynical, hardened, highly trained commando. I don't do crying. But as I was reading this little quote, I just couldn't hold it back. This is a very famous quote from Martin Luther. And uh, let me explain something in the quote so that you don't uh, mishear it. Luther is gonna say in this quote, to love God and sin boldly, okay? Now, here's what he means and doesn't mean by that. He doesn't mean that sin is okay, that's not his point. Luther was actually very holy. He's not saying that sin doesn't matter or sin is not dangerous. What he's doing is he's writing a letter to his best friend, a guy named Philip, Philip Melanchthon, and Philip is having a rough time. He's depressed, he's sad, there are doctrinal issues going on in his church, and so Luther writes him this letter to encourage him, and here's what he says. We're going to put it up on the screen. If you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach an imaginary but a true mercy. If the mercy is true, you must therefore bear the true, not an imaginary sin. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and sin boldly, but let your trust in Christ be stronger. And rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. Look at this next part. No sin can separate us from Him. Even if we were to kill or commit adultery thousands of times each day, do you think such an exalted lamb paid merely a small price with a meager sacrifice for our sins? So pray hard, for you are quite a sinner. So what Melanchthon's trying to do is he's trying to just not be a sinner. He's just trying to be better. And Luther says, you're way worse than that. You're way worse than you think you are, but it doesn't matter because you're way more forgiven than you think that you are. If you're someone who comes into church and thinks, man, I feel like I'm the only person that doesn't get it. I feel like holiness is easy for everybody but me. I feel like I'm a worse sinner than everybody else. That's who Jesus died for. He died for not the 99 who don't think they need forgiveness. He died for the one. He died for the sinner. If you're broken and you're hurting and you're really struggling, take heart. Jesus didn't die for just imaginary sinners. Jesus died for real sinners. And so that's the good news you need to hear out of 1 John, that the life who is with the Father, has come. And if you know Christ, you are saved. It is set in stone. That is an anchor that will hold. Death is no longer a reality for you eternally. You will die, but you will be raised. Condemnation is no longer a reality for you. You are loved. You are cared for. And God will not lose your salvation. Notice how I said that. I didn't say anything about you losing it. If it was up to you, you'd certainly lose it. God will not lose your salvation. Let's pray as those helping serve communion come up to the front. Father, we come before you through the Son and in the Spirit and ask for grace and mercy. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this little text. We thank you that we were able to take a little time and kind of get all the meat off the bone and really focus on these things. I pray that you would reassure our hearts that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we are saved if we know Christ. If we don't, I pray that you would save in here today. I pray that somebody walked in here today just planning on going to church and they walk out a Christian. They walk out converted. They walk out born again with a new heart. We confess that we can't do that. I can preach till I'm blue in the face, but I can't save a soul. Only you can do that. Would you do that? Would you transform hearts? For those that are in crippling, debilitating legalism and anxiety and fear and these things, would you get their eyes off of themselves? Would you let them know that they're loved? Would you let them know their feelings are false and it doesn't matter how they feel or if they ever get better, your word is still true. We love you and we thank you. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.